0: let's hack the process together what does it mean to position your business you probably think you know but after years as a marketing executive and consultant April Dunford's fresh perspective may surprise you in her new book obviously awesome April digs into the relevance of positioning and shows us step by step how to execute it and solve myriad business challenges along the way in this hack the process interview April will tell us how she structures her consulting business to optimize the lifestyle she prefers, why she decided to self publish her book, and what we can do today to discover the secret sauce that makes our own offerings special. Today I'm speaking with April Dunford, and she is the author of a new book called Obviously Awesome. April, how are you doing today? I'm doing
1: great. How are you doing?
0: So far, so good. I've been looking forward to talking with you about this because your book is about positioning. And I think that it's a subject that a lot of people think they understand, but I don't think a lot of people really do.
1: Oh, man, like positioning is super misunderstood. It's it's surprising to me how you can have a concept that is so fundamental. Like if you think about it, positioning sort of forms the foundation of almost everything we do in marketing and sales. Like it kind of defines who's my target market? Why am I different? Why am I better? What is the value? So I have this fundamental base thing that I got to get right if I want to do anything in marketing and sales. And yet, you know, if I ask 10 marketers to find positioning for me, I will get 10 completely different definitions. Like it is tragically, heartbreakingly misunderstood. In fact, it's so bad that most of the time when I talk to people about positioning, I have to start by explicitly saying, positioning is not, and then I listed a bunch of things, <laughs> it, it's not your tagline, it's not messaging, it's not, I've had some people say, well, positioning is kind of the sum total of everything we do in marketing. And it's way bigger than that, actually. It's, you know, it'll, it can impact pricing, it can impact the way we sell. And so it actually goes way beyond the marketing department or even just marketing. So, yeah, it's it's amazing to me that I can have something that's so fundamental, so important, and yet at the same time, so misunderstood.
0: And it's something people have been talking about for decades. I mean, the, the, the classic works on it go, go back, you know, long time ago, mid 20th century, I think, although arguably, depending on how you define it, it goes back further than that.
1: Yeah, like late seventies, really is when the when the term was coined by these guys Ries and Trout, Rise and Trout, depending on how you pronounce it. And they wrote a book in nineteen eighty two on the concept called positioning: the battle for your mind. And that book is great. I recommend it to people all the time. It but it does this really fantastic job in defining this is what positioning is. It doesn't give you any hints how to do it, <laughs> because <laughs> what you were supposed to do when you read the book was call them and. They ran an agency and they would help you with positioning and get it done. But, you know, when I learned positioning in school, we read that book and, you know, and that was sort of the background of how we did it. But I mean, 1982, you think about it, that's like pre internet.
0: And of course, they were positioning themselves as consultants and saying, here are all these things you need to know. We're the experts who know it. Come talk to us.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it was kind of a genius book that way. And in fact, their consultancy is still alive and going today. It's kind of, they've had an amazing run. And I think they're genius folks. But for me, as a person working in startups at tech companies, I was super frustrated by the fact that there was no methodology. I thought, well, come on, this is, you know, here I am, like, by the time I'm reading it, you know, I'm in the 2000s now. (laughs) (laughs) Like, surely between somewhere between 1982 and 2000, someone had a methodology like this can't still be we, we just read this book and what? make it up? Like, is that what we do? So, you know, and and these guys are super famous. So you could call them and their agency, but they're way too expensive. You're a little startup. You're not going to go work with those guys. So what exactly am I supposed to do? And the answer to that question was super surprising to me because the answer when you went to marketing school and you know, and you're like me and you put up your hand and say, um, so how do we do it? Is
0: you're supposed to do a positioning statement. Oh, yes. I've seen a lot of positioning statements.
1: Oh, man. (laughs) This thing is literally, of all the things I learned in marketing, this is the dumbest thing. Like, literally the dumbest thing. So it's like this fill-in-the-blanks, Mad Libs kind of thing. We are a blank for blank that does blank. And you're supposed to fill in, here's my market category, this is my competitor, this is why we're better. But the problem I saw with that is that every company that I worked for we had a product and we could position it in multiple different markets. So if all I'm supposed to do is fill in the blank for market category, how do I know I got the right one? Like there must be a methodology for how do I get the right answers for the blanks? And again, nothing, nothing. <laughs> so shocked by this. This vexed me for like a decade. I thought there's got to be a way to do this.
0: It's true. I, I mean, I see those forms and I think, okay, clearly in order to fill out the details in this form, I need to do something in order to understand what all of these things mean. And, and honestly, what comes out of this form, it's only going to be one facet of the multifaceted gem that is the experience of what my business is.
1: Well, that's exactly it. And, and it's, if you think about positioning, like, you know, now that I've repositioned lots of products you know i can look back in my career and think well you know what did we get wrong that it was weak in the first place and almost all of our weak positioning came from us sort of expecting that there there was an obvious kind of default position and in startups what that default position usually is is this is the thing we set out to build so, you know, I woke up in the morning and decided I'm going to build a better email system or better chat or better something. And, you know, you build the thing, you get it out. Customers use it. They they like parts of it. They don't like other parts of it. You're iterating on the thing. But then at the same time, the market itself is changing. So new competitors are coming in and what's what's capa- what we're capable of doing is changing all the time. And so you fast forward a couple of years and all of a sudden, you know, your thing that you built that you thought was email now looks like chat or it looks like team collaboration or it looks like something else. But you still think of it as email because that's how you have always thought about it. And if you sat down and did a positioning statement exercise, you would say we are an email solution, you know, unlike other email solutions. And you could be very wrong.
0: If you just take those default answers that you started with and you don't pay attention to how the market is evolving and how you're evolving with it, you can lose track of that.
1: Well, yeah. And you, you could be that you're even conscious of all of that. You're just not conscious of what's happening when you walk in and you say to a customer, hey, we're email. Because what happens when you do that is it sets off this kind of chain reaction of a bunch of assumptions in the, in the customer's mind. So if you walk in and say, hi, I'm email. Well, who's my competitor? Gmail, Outlook, uh, uh, you know, what functionality should I have? Well, you should have an inbox, you should have a calendar, you should have like, we know what email is, we know what it costs, it's pretty much free. <laughs> so you better <laughs> be pretty much free. Whereas if I, I could have something that has almost the exact same capabilities, but let's say, you know, my special feature has something more to do with file sharing. Like if I come in and say it's email, and I've got this cool file sharing thing, but I don't have a calendar. Well, I don't care so much about file sharing and email, but I care a lot about calendars. So you what you just described is crummy email. But if I took the exact same product and put it in team collaboration... Well, now it's team collaboration. That looks like email too, except I expect it to have file sharing and I don't expect it to have a calendar. So, you know, I can take almost any product and position it in multiple different markets and the market I put it in sets off a really different set of assumptions about what it does, what it costs, who my competitors are. And one of those will be better than the others. (laughs) so you have to be able to figure out, well, where's the best place to put it? Because most of the things I use, I mean, I I could position them in lots of different markets. And some of them, it would be a lousy thing in that market. And some of them, it would be a market leading thing in that
0: market. So which one you pick is actually really important. So I think part of the challenge with an exercise like that is having relevant data that you can use to do that positioning.
1: Totally. So, in fact, some people get a bit stuck on exactly that phase. They're, you know, they'll be like, well, it could be any of these things. And I'm going to have to go and gather all this data about what are the key characteristics of solutions in all of these markets and who are the leaders in all of these markets and how do I stack up against them? And how would I even get that data if I'm a startup and I don't have access to market research? And in the work I do with companies, if the product is out in the market already and you have customers that love you already, then the answers are in your customer's head. And the best way to go get it is to go talk to your customers. Now there's lots of ways to mess this up. Like people will say, Oh, I put a I I surveyed my customers. I have a thousand customers. I surveyed them all and I asked them, you know, what am I? Like what market category should I be? And who who do you compare me to? And I got this answers and they're all across the board and there's no patterns. And that's very typical and it happens a lot. You don't actually want to ask everybody you want to ask the people that love you <laughs> because every business has a handful of customers that are just plain bad fit customers. <laughs> like if you knew what you do now, you would never sell to those people. And if they really knew what you did, they would never buy your thing either. But we are where we are, but you don't want to take feedback from those folks because they're not great fit customers. What you want to do is find the people that love you, isolate them, and then go in and say, you know what, if we didn't exist, what would you do? And this is often really eye-opening exercise because we sometimes think you know, I'm email, so I must be competing with email. Or even in consulting, you get this, right? I do, uh, you know, marketing consulting. Therefore, I must compete with other marketing consultants. But when you go in and talk to customers, they often will, if you ask them that question, like, what would you do if we weren't around? Or, you know, if this product didn't exist, like, what were you doing before to solve this problem? You had the problem before, what were you doing? And they will often tell you things that don't look like quote unquote, competitors, but are actually really great alternatives. Like, oh, if I didn't buy your product, I would hire an intern and the intern would do it. Or if I didn't buy your product, I'd just use Excel or Word, or I would just do it manually. It'd be a bit of a pain, but I would get it done. And so this is where we end up with weak positioning often is we say, you know, I'll talk to a company and they'll say, Look, there's thousands of other solutions in the market that are very similar to ours, but our big differentiator is that we're super easy to use. But then you go talk to the customer that loves them and the customer says, oh, uh, yeah, if I didn't use them, I would hire an intern. <laughs> and oh, by the way, I never heard of those thousand other little companies either, because they're all startups. <laughs> That's all. And I would just use an intern. You say, well, Then you say, well, what makes me different and better? What are my key differentiators? You can't say ease of use because you know what's easy to use? Joey, the intern. (laughs) (laughs) Just do this for me, Joey. Get me a coffee while you're at it. We're good. So, You don't know what's differentiating if you don't really know what you're getting compared to. So if you're making the wrong comparison, you will be highlighting the wrong differentiators. So if I was there saying, hey, we're easier to use, but I'm comparing you to Joey. No, you're not. Joey's better.
0: I, I should just stick with Joey. Joey beats you. In some ways, I find that a very comforting message, because if you have customers out there and they do love you and they know what they love about you, you can find out more about how you can position yourself to optimize that.
1: That's exactly it. Like, if you don't have happy customers, I can't help you, right? But if you have, then you've got an offering problem. But if you've got customers out there, they picked you for a reason, they stick with you for a reason, they love you for a reason, you just got to get underneath, one- what's the competitive comparable? And then two, how do you beat that? And that's it. And you know, so, so you figure out that and then you say, okay, they pick me over Joey because Joey makes a mistake every time he does it. And Joey never, you know, and I keep rotating interns and I have no history of this. And then I have to train the new one or, you know, every time we make a mistake in this thing, it costs us this kind of money. And so why you want to use my product over an intern is because all of a sudden, this is super easy to do. You never make mistakes. There's less rework there. You don't get a fine, <laughs> you know, whatever happens when a mistake happens. And that's what you need to be focusing on in your value propositions. When you're talking about why are we valuable? Well, you're never going to have to pay a late fine again. You're never going to have to worry about, you know, what's, what happens when Joey leaves again. And then you say, okay, well, if that's my value that's different and better, then the next question is who cares about that? which is, you know, what is it about your super happy customers that makes them pick you over anything else? So, you know, they must really value that stuff. So what is it about them that makes them really value that? So it could be that, you know, you do something around invoicing that makes invoicing really simple and amazing, But if you only send out two invoices a month, who cares? But if you send out a thousand invoices a month, oh, you just solved a massive problem for me. So you're trying to get at that. What is the characteristics of a buyer that makes them put really high value on your special sauce? And that's going to get you to your customer segmentation, which is these are my best fit customers. If they look like this or they do things like this or they have these characteristics, then these are my people. And I want all my marketing to speak to them because those folks don't ask for a discount. Those folks intuitively get what we do. Those folks love the value because they feel the pain deeply. And then that gets you to who your segment is. And then the last piece of that, you know, when you're having that discussion of what market should we be in, you're really stepping back and saying, look, if this is our differentiated value, these are the people I need to communicate that to What is the best market for me to position in that makes that value obvious to those folks? And so, you know, if your value, you know, if I come back to my email versus team collaboration example, if my value is all around this, all this cool stuff that I can do with file sharing, then I'm better to position this thing as team collaboration because that'll make my value more obvious for the people trying to buy. If I position it as email, well, then I got to explain why team collaboration, you know, why this file sharing thing even belongs there. And I'm also going to have to explain why I never got around to building a calendar (laughs) or whatever else. So. So that's kind of the sum of positioning. The, the book that I wrote, obviously awesome, outlines this step-by-step process for going through that, starting with competitive comparables and then going to differentiated features, which leads to differentiated value, which leads to who cares a lot about that value or your target customers. And then the last one being, okay, if it's this value of these people, what market am I actually in and intend to win?
0: That makes sense. And I, I hear you using the term value proposition as opposed to positioning statement. And it feels to me like, if you're intelligently deriving your value proposition, what you'll end up with is a useful positioning statement as opposed to an abstract positioning statement.
1: Yeah, like I I actually think that if you think about positioning, the important parts of the positioning statement is not the fact that it's in the statement form, it's the blanks. So the blanks in the positioning statement are the important things. So in my mind, I thought, well, let's just take positioning and I'll break it down into component pieces. And then we'll figure out a way to find the best answers for each of the blanks. So in my mind, there's five things. It's, it's competitive alternatives, differentiated functionality and features, the value. So your value that the differentiated value that, you know, these features enable this value. The next one is who's your target market or who are your customers that care. And then the last one is, What market do you intend to win? Meaning, what market category do you actually play in? Those are the five things. In my mind, trying to jam them into a statement doesn't make any sense to me. I think you should just write down the five things. Like I have like a canvas, but you could literally just, you know, have a piece of paper and just write it down. Here's the five things and here's the answer to that. (laughs) And then, and then what you want to do from that, once you're clear on that, Then you can start building all the things that are downstream from the positioning statement. So your value proposition statements and your messaging and your tagline and all that good stuff starts with what you've filled out in the positioning canvas so you say okay if this is my value and I'm trying to communicate it to these people how do I write a value proposition statement that makes sense right if this is the market I'm in and this is the value I'm trying to communicate to these folks what's a good tagline that I might have what should my homepage say it's, and all these things are again downstream from the positioning
0: Yeah, and it kind of speaks to the the stage that the, the business is in, because it's assumed that when you are in your initial stages and you're trying to raise some venture capital, you'll have a positioning statement that would appeal to a venture capitalist. But when you actually have your market in place, how you run the business might end up being something very different.
1: Oh, this brings up actually a really important point, which is positioning for a customer is often very different than the positioning you'll do to an investor. So investors are generally, they're really concerned about where you're going to be like five, 10 years in the future. So they want to know your big vision of what this thing is ultimately going to be and why you're going to be a big, big business, which makes you a good investment customers, on the other hand, are a lot more short-term focused. They're a bit like, what are you going to do for me today? Because I got to slap my dollars down today. You got to give me something. So I don't necessarily care where you're going to be five years from now. I want, I want you to still be in business <laughs> because I don't want to invest in a thing and you're going to go away. You know, But I don't really care about what value you deliver five years from now because I'm not buying five years from now. I'm buying right now. VCs, on the other hand, or or any kind of investors, I think will be looking more to, okay, you're here, you need to get to be big, and what's the plan between here and there? The interesting thing I've found is, you know, having been through raising money myself a bunch of times, sometimes you're pitched to a venture capitalist, like when you talk about You know, we're going to disrupt the industry and you know, there's all these current players in there. We're going to wipe them out and we're going to be this big thing. And in 10 years, it'll be amazing. If I give that same pitch to a customer, the customer would hate me. Make like, I'd be in there talking about, hey, all that stuff you've already invested in, we're going to disrupt all of it. Throw it all in the garbage. And then, then we'll end up like in five years from now, we'll own all of this. And, and I think a lot of customers, if you pitch them the way you pitched your venture capitalist, I think the customer would run away screaming and say, oh, no, you don't. I don't want any of that. And I just have this little wee thing to do right now. And I'm not ready for your big thing. I don't trust you to do that. And so the two pitches need to be pretty different. And so your differentiated value for an investor is very different from your differentiated value for a customer.
0: It sounds like your book targets people who are looking for that statement relative to customers in particular.
1: Yeah, for for my book, that's very much the focus. I have a little section in there about how it's different for investors. But I do think that, when I work with companies that have weak positioning, a lot of the times when you're having the discussion about where did this weak positioning come from, it either comes from this default position they've always always had since the beginning, or they've just gotten done a big round of fundraising. And so they've spent the last six months or eight months, you know, talking about their business in this big far reaching far future sort of a way. And it started infecting their sales pitch. (laughs) So, So they start saying the same stuff in their sales pitch and you can see the customers going a bit like, I don't know if I get what you do anymore. And so sometimes doing too much fundraising will muddy your, actual pitch for customers because, you know, the venture capitalists wouldn't like your customer pitch. It's too narrow.
0: You know, thinking about it, I can think of executives I've worked with and that I've watched who've gotten into that trap themselves because they were so focused on the investment side of it. And then trying to find alignment within the company around the messaging that they have probably conflated those concepts, which really should be distinct.
1: No, oh, I I I totally believe that, and a lot of the work I do, you know, will you'll come in and it's the messaging has gotten muddy between the investor messaging and the customer messaging, and it happens gradually over a period of six to eight months, and and you have to kind of detangle it, and it, and sometimes folks don't even know it's gotten messy, and there it is, it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> this is why it's good sometimes to bring someone in from the outside to look at it because. You know, you often get so close to it internally that you don't even you don't even see it. You you think, oh, it's the same pitch I've been doing for a year, and then you look at it. No, actually, (laughs) this has been all messed up with investor stuff, and we need to kind of pull that out of there if it's going to get back to being a good customer pitch.
0: Absolutely. So now you've been a business consultant for a number of years, and I know you've been speaking on this topic of positioning for a while. How did it come together for you that you realized this was a place where you really needed to focus your attention?
1: Yeah. So I spent the majority of my career as kind of a repeat vice president of marketing inside tech companies. In fact, the whole arch of my career looks like this. April joins a startup. April staffs a little marketing team we get some good growth going, everything's looking really good. And then we get acquired. And then April is stuck working at the acquiring company for like two years or however long it is until I can't take it anymore. And then I leave and I go join another cool startup. And then I repeat the process (laughs) like every few years. So I've done that five or six times. And the last one, after the last one, I kind of thought, you know what, I, I feel like doing something different. And I'd I'd always done a little consulting on the side or, you know, a little bit of kind of relaxed consulting, you know, after I'd left the big company and I was looking for a new company to join. Sometimes I would do a little bit of work for a handful of different companies just to kind of try them out and see, you know, do we like each other? And then you pick the one you like the most and you join them. So I had done consulting before, but this time I kind of thought, no, I'm gonna do consulting properly, not just as a try and buy for a new company. I'm gonna and at the beginning I wasn't really sure what my offering should be. And so I spent a lot of time talking to companies that called me because, you know, I've been doing this for like marketing at tech companies for a while. So companies call me all the time and say, hey, I got this marketing problem. And listening to the way people describe their problems a lot of the time, like it it seemed to me that what presented itself as a marketing problem or a lead generation problem or a sales problem was actually a positioning problem underneath. And if you could figure out how to fix the positioning, then the marketing problem just went away <laughs> and, the, and so I thought, well, there must be a way to do it. And then I got really obsessed with this idea that there must be a methodology. we must be able to like do a thing and so I decided that was going to be my offering. Now, at the beginning, I wasn't very good at it, (laughs) to be honest, because I knew how to do positioning internally as a full-time person, but it took me a long time to figure out how to make that a consulting offer. Which means you have some things available to you and you have other things that you do not. Like, for example, internally as a vice president, I would spend a lot of time going on sales calls with sales leaders and pouring through a lot of the sales data. And I would probably do 50 customer calls and listen to them. But as a consultant, nobody wants to pay me to do that, <laughs> partly because you know, even at the beginning, I did have some people pay me to do that. And then I would, you know, I would get all this great learning. And then I'd come back and all the people inside would say, yeah, duh, we already knew that, April. Like, (laughs) Why are we paying you to tell us stuff we already know? And so gradually I came around to this idea that I have a methodology. There's a beginning, there's an end. And part of that methodology has to be around getting the right people together in a room and pulling what those people already know out so that we can all look at it together and get alignment on the team on the you know this is this is where we want to go this is what it is and so the stuff i do now is a workshop it, it doesn't look anything like what my original offering was which was this big three four month consulting thing that literally no startup wanted to buy
0: <laughs> that is interesting
1: now i've got this thing down to like it's an in-person two-day workshop and you should see the stuff we get done in two days it's amazing compared to, you know, this big, long engagement that used to cost people tons of money. Now it's like a thing. It's, pretty, it's only a couple of days, so it doesn't cost that much money. There's a bunch of upfront work for me, but it's nothing like what the thing originally looked at like. My transition into consulting has been kind of interesting that way, like defining my own product, if you will, as a consultant has been a bit of a journey.
0: I was thinking about that because you want to productize what you're doing so that it can scale beyond you having to do it individually at some point.
1: You know what, though? I love doing it individually.
0: I'm not saying you don't. And we all do. (laughs) I do a lot of individual consulting too. But I know a lot of people out there think, okay, I need to productize this so that I can reach more people.
1: Yeah. So I think it depends on your goals in life. Like, you know, and part of this comes from me being kind of older. And so, you know, I'm at a stage in my career now where I want to be able to be really picky about the clients I work with. And so I want to be able to charge fair for what I do, but I want people to feel like they're getting big value for it. But at the same time, I want to be able to be really picky. Like if I don't think we're going to get along, like, you know, in startups, there's lots of big personalities. (laughs) And so you got to kind of make sure, like, we're going to spend a couple of days together. It should be fun. Right. So, so I want to pick who I get to work with. I want to pick personalities that I want to hang out with. And I want to be able to just say no (laughs) to the ones that I think aren't a good fit. And then I've managed teams my whole career. Like for 25 years, I've managed teams. And I specifically, when I designed this consulting business, I wanted it to be, you know, maybe later I'll want to hire some people. But if I don't hire any people, it works just fine with just me. And so that in itself, if you sit back and say, that's kind of what you're looking for, You need to be doing something that's really specialized. And that's exactly what I do. Like there isn't, not everybody's got a positioning problem. Not everybody needs my services. But if you do who are you going to call? Like, I'm kind of the only, like, there's not that many of us around that do this kind of work. And I'm super experienced and deep on this stuff. And so not everybody needs what I do. But if you do, you get the value of it, you like it. So I'm really into this kind of niche positioning to like just construct my best life as a consultant. And I would say of all the things I've done in this business, that's the thing I'm the most proud of. I'm Pretty picky about who I work with. I don't say yes to work where I don't think there's big value for both of us in doing it. And what what you get in the end are like super happy customers, and they refer refer you new business, and it's kind of great.
0: That is very impressive. I love that you've positioned this for yourself around the the way that you want to spend your time and the way that you want to work. And I know I know from experience. It's a very different experience going in as a consultant to bring a company ideas versus trying to bring those same ideas when you are embedded in the hierarchy.
1: Totally different. Totally different. Like there's some things that like, and it's better and worse, right? And so you should be able to bring as a consultant, you should be able to bring the things that you want a consultant to bring, right? So you don't expect the consultant to know more about your business than you do. And so any consultant that comes in and claims they're going to like troll through the numbers and do the research and do whatever, I was always suspect of that when I was internal as a VP marketing because I was like, look, dude, I've been here seven years. You're not going to figure this out more than me <laughs> in like a couple of months. But what a consultant can bring than an internal person can't is the consultant can bring an outside perspective. And often a lot of the logjam stuff that's happening internally is because, again, everyone's gotten too close to their own stuff. And they need an outside person to kind of come in and say, I don't know, like, I, you know, I don't want to challenge anything too much here, but I think you guys are way too close to this and you're not thinking like a customer anymore. That's one thing. The second thing a consultant can do, and this is really important in positioning work, is the consultant gets to come in and work with the team in a fearless kind of a way. And what I mean by that is when I did internal work on positioning, I had to be very, very careful of the internal politics so that I didn't get fired. Yes, yes. (laughs) And so I couldn't do a positioning exercise without making sure the VP sales was totally on board, without making sure the head of product was completely on board, without being really careful about challenging too much sacred cow stuff that the founder had really close to his heart. Whereas I can come in as the consultant and in a workshop and ask the question that everybody in the room is too scared to ask (laughs) because if they asked it, they got to spend a lot of political capital to do it. And so that I think is, if you've got issues that are like that, it's very good to bring the outside person in that can come in and just sort of fearlessly say, Hey, John, I hear you're saying this, but uh, you know, Catherine, what do you think of that? Like, like, are you guys all in agreement? And if there's a disagreement, let's talk about that in a kind of a safe place where, you know, disagree with me, the consultant, you don't have to disagree with each other. Like, you know, and this getting people all in alignment is often, it's often way easier if you can bring someone in from the outside, than you try to do it internally, like particularly, you know, the brand new VP of marketing has zero political clout. In fact, the brand new VP of marketing is probably the most likely next person to get fired at a startup. (laughs) 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 And I've seen it, man. Like they come in and three months later, you're like, hey, I thought you took that VP marketing job at that company. Yeah, (laughs) didn't work out.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Go in for a three month consulting contract and step out easily and you've got a much better position there.
1: Well, this you know, this is the thing. Like, again, like it's sometimes there's things you want to get done as an internal new hire that you just simply do not have the political capital to do. But bringing someone in from the outside, it's like, well, I mean, you know, the worst thing that happens, everybody's mad at the marketing consultant. Who cares? I'm going to leave tomorrow and never see you guys again. Like, I don't care if you're all mad at me and, and you know, and they don't get mad at me. Because, again, politically, I'm a nothing. So there's no point in getting mad at the consultant. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's great when you can come in and bust up some of this stuff and you know that you've moved something along that that would have been very difficult for just the internal players to do on their own. But you coming in from the outside without any fear of repercussions can come in and say, okay, well, what I'm hearing is this. Would you all agree? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Seeing that probably was contributed to your choice to move into consulting yourself.
1: Yeah, well, it did It did inform me thinking about what my value is, right? Because if, if you're just bringing the same value that an internal person could do, you just want to do it short term, then there's there's no point in doing consulting. You might as well just go back and have a full-time job. If your job looks exactly the same outside, you're just doing it part-time, that's it's different kind of work. I wanted to do work that was consulting. So I really wanted to do work where, you know, this is really hard to do internally on your own. And there's big value in bringing a consultant from the outside to work on this thing. And there's a beginning and an end. And this is not an employee job. This is something that if you want to get this done fast, efficiently, well, you would actually pull someone from the outside to do it.
0: That makes sense. When, when you were starting this up, you, you know, you've you mentioned that you're proud of the way you've constructed this. I'm curious if you looked to anybody or looked to resources in terms of how you would build a consulting business for yourself.
1: You know what? I, <laughs> <laughs> I should have done more of that. I should have done more of that. I talked to some people, but I think I'm one of these people that has to learn stuff the hard way. Like I talked to a lot of people that were doing consulting but I didn't come across that many that I thought were a model for what I wanted to do. I talked to a lot of people that were running like agencies, what I would call like a little agency. So it's a consulting company. They have a handful of clients, and most of those people seemed really stressed out to me. They were constantly worried about whether or not they could make payroll. They were constantly hiring people, and then they'd lose a big client, and then they'd have to let people go. And you know, they'd have big rent on these big offices, and those people just did not seem to have a life that. I wanted. They were all stressed out and they weren't making any money either. So I I didn't understand that. And then I talked to a lot of consultants that were just kind of on their own and not that many, but I didn't find that many with a real specialization. I did come across a couple like I, and I used to work with this one gal that was just a really excellent sales copywriter. And she only worked with B2B companies and she only did tech. And it was super specific. She's retired now, but I used to bring her in to all my companies as a consultant because she was so good and she was super specialized and she was expensive and she was worth every penny. (laughs) Like you could find someone cheaper, but you couldn't find someone better and you knew it was going to be excellent. So, you know, there were a couple that I saw that I thought that's more the model that I want to do. And then I saw a lot that were just what I would call freelancers. They're kind of... They're doing the same thing that a full-time employee would do. They just don't want the commitment of full-time work. So they're going to do a little here. They're just working part-time or whatever. And I didn't think that's what I wanted to do either. So I wanted to do this thing that was more specialized, but wasn't necessarily like, you know, I need to be 20 people in a big agency to get any of this stuff done. And I'm going to be all stressed out about making payroll and paying my rent and stuff. I wanted to have more control than that.
0: So did you see any examples of people who who were doing that?
1: I met some folks, like I did meet a handful of consultants that I think gave me ideas about this. Like I met a guy that would, I think you would characterize him more as a management consultant, that he came in and did kind of transformation work. And so he informed my thinking a little bit in that he was talking about getting alignment on the executive team and how that being one of the big value that that an outside consultant would, could bring is You know, just getting everybody to agree in a way that somebody internally that's, you know, got an agenda in a department can't be a neutral person to get everyone to agree. So he influenced my thinking there. I think this other gal that that did the copywriting stuff, that she got me thinking about the power of getting really specialized on something and being able to put your rates up because you're specialized on it and kind of building a book of business word of mouth by, I don't do a lot of stuff. I just do this thing, but it's really specialized. And if you don't need it, that's fine. But if you do, I'm the only game in town. But yeah, like I I wish, like if I was to do it again, I think it would have been much more efficient if I had taken the first six months and spent more time talking to consultants. Like now I know all kinds of consultants that do things in a way very much like what I'm doing. And so I wish I hadn't met those people earlier.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the reasons a lot of people try to be more general at the beginning of their consulting business is that issue of trying to book enough clients and feel like they can pay the bills.
1: Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, I like... I think that's really hard at the beginning. Nobody knows who you are and you don't have a brand and nobody's calling you because you just started. And I think at the beginning, a lot of folks that start in consulting, they struggle with that. And, you know, I I do a lot of mentoring myself with people that are trying to make the shift into consulting. And a lot of what I counsel people on is, you know, not just making the big break from full-time work to consulting like sometimes you can you can work into it part-time or you should at a minimum have a couple of clients in your pocket before you jump (laughs) because if you jump and you don't have that it could be months before you have that and so you either need a couple of clients or you need a nest egg that's gonna you know fund you through the lean opening six months while you're (laughs) trying to build a book of business and you're trying to figure that piece out for me, I was lucky in that I mean this is quite late in my career. I've spent 25 years working as a vice president, so I've got enough of a buffer cash wise that you know I could spend the first year kind of fooling around and not fooling around, but learning stuff and you know still being kind of picky about who I worked with, but not worrying too much about oh if I don't close a new client this month, I'm dead, uh, which is the advantage you get when you're doing this at a more mature stage in your career, but. I think there's lots of ways to do it earlier in your career. You just have to be smarter about hedging your bets a little bit and making sure you've got enough tucked away because it takes way longer to build a book of business than
0: you think. Sure, the phenomenon of the side hustle is a very real thing.
1: Yeah, and I think side hustles are great. Like it's a great way to start. Like I'll tell you one thing that I'm really glad that I did and again, this was just luck and not good management on my part, but I had always maintained a a kind of an outside presence outside of my company. So I started a blog ages ago and, you know, I didn't blog a lot on it, but I blogged enough that people knew me through my blog. I had a pretty good presence on social media and I always done a certain amount of public speaking, not just representing my company, but also just me talking about stuff that I know. And so that helped me a lot when I transitioned to consulting in that, I was already kind of a person that people knew. Whereas I see a lot of people when you're inside working in a company, it's funny and this happens a lot to marketing people. You're inside working in a company and all your energy is focused on marketing the company. So nobody ever hears of you, but you know, your great work is, is marketing the company itself. But then when you go to make this transition to consulting, like literally nobody knows you, you have a hundred followers on Twitter and, 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 you know, you have nobody connected to you on LinkedIn and you have, and, and you're kind of starting from nothing. Whereas I had always kind of had a bit of that, you know, probably because the companies I worked at kept getting acquired and then, you know, and then I, and then two years later I'd have to go find a new job. So I was always making sure that, you know, I was out speaking at conferences and I was writing some stuff and my stuff was kind of out there so that when I finally did make the transition to full-time consulting, people were like, oh yeah, I know her. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard of her. Even though, you know, they hadn't really heard of me as a consultant yet, but there was, I still had a bit of a, like what people call a platform, you know, so I'm not super into personal branding, but I do think it helps to be known and known for something before you need to sell that something.
0: And I think that it's easy for people to neglect the speaking and the writing and those opportunities because they won't pay the bills up front.
1: No. And it's work, man. And you got a full-time job. You're busy. (laughs) (laughs) you You know, and now you got this side hustle thing too. It feels like work. But for me, I always did it for fun. Like I always liked writing and I, I really like blogging at the beginning when I was blogging at the beginning. It was just sort of fun way to organize my thoughts about something. But I blogged for years where nobody read anything. Like literally I get like 20 hits on a blog (laughs) post. And then then at some point it got a little bit better and, you know, and I got more of a following. But at the beginning I was just kind of doing it for me and for fun, which is why I did it. So it wasn't like I was saying, oh, gee, someday I'm going to need to just sell myself. And so people should know who I am now you know so I didn't do it with that intent but I'm glad that I did because then when I did switch to consulting I wasn't starting from zero but that's a little advice that I give people now is to not not neglect your own network and you know you should be out there even if you're not into writing or speaking like a lot of people think they have to be public speakers to do this stuff and you don't not everybody's a great public speaker But I think being out there, having coffee with people, meeting people, if you're writing or sharing your stuff somehow, I think it just helps you be a known person, even if you're just known in your town or you're just known in your community of copywriters or your community of whatever it is you do. I think it's it is important to have that community so that, you know, it maybe it helps you get into consulting, maybe it helps you 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 develop a product you want to sell at some point or even it's just helping you get your next job when your job ends in a way that you weren't expecting.
0: Absolutely. And you know, for somebody who likes to write, is this is your first book, right?
1: Yeah, first book, my last book too, I think. It was hard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about how that went. How how did the writing process go for you?
1: It was hard, man. The writing the book was the easy part. It was getting it out was the hard part. So I had originally talked to a publisher and I kind of decided against traditional publishing because I I didn't feel like it gave me enough control. Like traditional publishers, they want the book to be a certain length and they want it to look a certain way. And they're in charge of whether or not it gets translated into another language or whether, you know, they're in charge of a lot, like they, they will design a cover. And if you don't like it, you kind of have to go with what they want. And so, I'm way too much of a control freak about stuff like that. And and I think I have you know good ideas about what this should look like. So in the end, I decided to self-publish, but I hired some folks to work with me on cover design and interior design and editing and all that stuff. And the editing part was really, really painful, way more painful than I expected. I thought the hard part was going to be writing it, but I wrote it. I sent it to the editor. The editor sent me rewrites back on and and it was a totally different book like like it was beautifully written and it had my name on it but I don't know what that book was about <laughs> i was like i don't that's a neat book that's not my book but that's a neat and so I actually rewrote my book for the editor which is weird right like, because she didn't understand it and because she didn't understand it she couldn't edit it And so I had to write it again, you know, looking at what she wrote and thinking, oh, my God, she thought this meant that. And oh, she didn't understand this. And And so I rewrote again. And then we did another round of edits. And the next round of edits wasn't much better. So I kind of rewrote the book three, four times. And then in the editing process, like, like, I'm kind of funny, like, you know, if you see me do a talk at a conference, I like, you know, I think positioning is a really dry topic. So it's good to have a little humor in it. And the editors, I think it's hard to edit and keep the person's voice and keep the person's humor in there. And so they kept writing out my humor and I kept trying to put it back in like it it was it was so hard. I don't know if I'll ever do it again. It was so hard. I'm happy with where we ended up, but you know, I remember very late in the process getting really cold feet, like after we'd done several rounds of editing, I remember stepping back and thinking, yeah, I'm so close to this thing now. And we've done so many rounds of edit edits that I'm not sure this is a good book (laughs) anymore. (laughs) I can't even tell, you know, and I had to send it to a couple of my friends and say, look, I just need you to tell me whether this is embarrassing. Like, should I just put this thing out or should I? And then they came back and said, Oh my God, no, it's so great. Whatever. And it totally sounds like you. And I'm like, great. Cause I don't, I can't even read it anymore I'm too close to it I don't know if I have the gumption to do another project like that man like I think the the best thing I had going for me at the beginning of this process was ignorance <laughs> 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 it'll all be fine she said it'll be easy <laughs>
0: Well, so if my listeners want to go read a book that was born out of ignorance, what should I say
1: Right, right. The the book, you can buy it anywhere online. So you can go to Amazon or, you know, Barnes and Noble or anywhere. If you look, if you go online and you, and the the name of the book is obviously awesome and, or my name, April Dunford, you'll find it there. It's a very orange book. (laughs) You can't miss it. Yeah. You can find it there, but my website is aprildunford.com and there's a, there's a book page in there. And if you go there, there's links to all the places you can go get
0: one. Awesome. I will definitely include that in the show notes. And April, it's been a pleasure talking with you and thank you for sharing your story with my audience.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me on. This is fun.
0: Are you glad you listened to this episode of hack the process? Then take an action now, make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.